A lot of people messaged me and were really upset or just like, you know, we're really sad about this. And I was too. I was really sad writing that. But those are things that kids are going through. I remember vividly when my son, Cassius, first realized that people can die, that we will lose people in our lives. We were walking into our home after a long day of work and daycare. He said to me, Mira says people can die too, not just plants and animals. His big eyes looked up at me in the evening light and he saw me catch my breath and consider what to tell him. In that moment, he knew his friend's words were true. He fell to the ground incredulous and sad. No matter what we do, that innocence is either lost through experience or learning as kids grow up. And it is so important for children to learn how to process hard truths and how to work through difficult situations and emotions. Karina Ann Glazer believes reading can play a critical role in helping kids grow and grapple with life's unexpected turns. Karina is a New York Times best-selling author widely known for her hit children's series, The Vanderbeekers. She embeds empathy into everything she writes, connecting with kids on an honest and emotional level. Just letting myself feel all those emotions when I'm writing it. In this episode of The Reading Culture, Karina tells us about how she intertwines her real-life experiences into her writing to deepen that connection, about the ways in which reading about tough situations and topics can build resilience and empathy in kids, and how her own experiences with books as a child led her to become an author. Karina also shared her own reading challenge that has a unique theme and fantastic set of suggested books. You can hear more about that at the end of our conversation. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas are connecting so well with kids. Today, we welcome Karina Yan Glazer. Your home is filled with books and plants, as I see behind yes. you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There are the books. Uh, I've seen a bunch of articles, and I was thinking that your um, your kids are so lucky to live in that environment. And I was wondering what your environment, your like reading and book environment, was like as a kid. Growing up, I didn't remember really having so much of a reading culture within our family. Like my parents, I don't ever recall them reading to me or doing like nightly read-alouds. For me, it was really amazing when I first started to read on my own because all of a sudden all these worlds and situations and families became real to me in a way that I hadn't been exposed to before. I don't remember really reading until like first or second grade. and But when I did, I was just totally voracious. I just wanted to read everything and... I just really fell in love with reading. Yeah, but if you weren't reading at home, like what made you want to read on your own? Yeah, we moved around a lot. So I was born in Illinois, 
and lived there until first grade. And then halfway through first grade, we made a cross-country trip to California. Because we moved around a lot and because I changed schools a lot, I definitely felt like the library was a huge refuge for me because I would get to a new school, not know anyone, and usually the schools I would go to, it'd be like a school where people were pretty rooted. So trying to break into a new grade and not know anyone, I would always find the library first. I just always felt like it was a safe place and also familiar. Like every library has a feeling and a lot of them have similar books. So it'd be nice to just go there and be like, okay, this is familiar and safe. Did your experience growing up and that attachment that you had to libraries and books inform how you are raising your own children now and the ways in which you read to them, read with them, you know, help curate the books they're reading or don't now? Mm-hmm. When I first got pregnant with my older daughter, I was like most excited about reading to her. And so when I was pregnant, I was even like reading to her when I was pregnant and my husband would get in on it too. <laughs> we just like lie in bed and we'd read these children's books and it was really fun. And and then when she was born, we would read a lot and just have baskets of board books. So she was always surrounded by books. You know, we'd be on the subway a lot. So I had a bag, a tube bag that was just filled with books. We'd always be reading on the subway to pass the time. And like, you know, when I was bathing her, I would read sort of longer chapter books like E.B. White just to I don't know, I just really loved reading to her. And then my second daughter was born and we were we did the same thing. We just always had books. We'd go to the library. We discovered that there was a limit of 50 checkouts, which should be enough, you know? <laughs> and Yeah, picture books go quickly though. Yeah, they do go quickly. So <laughs> we ended up taking out a card and both of their names so we could just like get up. You can have more to check out. And then it just became this nightmare of like, when are these due? Where's that library book? <laughs> like, is it, you know, always losing them. But it was just really lovely. And I think that those early years, like books were just, we were always reading. It was so great. And now my kids are 12 and 14 and they, they read a ton still, but mostly on their own. I miss that time when we were, we would just like, I'll hang out and read. And sometimes we still do that, but not as often. As Karina found herself more engulfed in the world of literature, the idea of living in New York City took hold. She read book after book about the city, its interesting communities and diverse cultures, and the allure of a place where she could imagine herself living. It's no surprise that as an adult, she would end up writing a magical series like The Vanderbeekers, where the family's Harlem neighborhood plays such an integral role. Although Karina read many stories about the imaginative world that is New York, there was one that stood out from the rest. It was a book where she saw not only who she was as a kid, but also who she could be as an adult. One of my favorite books is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I think that that was probably the book that made me want to move to New York. I just loved the author's description of the city and neighborhoods, community. 
that was like a very important book to me. And I remember giving it to my older daughter like a year ago. And I was like, this is my favorite book. So if you don't like it, don't say anything to me. And she was like, I'm afraid to read it because I don't, if I don't like it, I don't want to like have to lie to you. (laughs) So she didn't read it. (laughs) But I love that book. I also love sort of these like big family New York City stories, like All of a Kind Family by Sidney Taylor. I love that book. The Moffats, The Saturdays. And I think definitely those books inform the Vanderbeekers. And like there are definitely lots of elements in those books about big families, about New York, about community that I wanted to bring into the Vanderbeekers while also making sure readers knew that this was set in a modern time. But there is sort of this sense of, well, I tried to at least write this timelessness into the Vanderbeekers. So definitely a lot of those books. I mean, I fell in love with New York City because I read about it and just thought it was, just sounded so great. (laughs) Betty Smith's 1943 novel, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, is the semi-autobiographical story chronicling the coming-of-age years of Francie Nolan. It begins with 11-year-old Francie and her family living in the Williamsburg tenement neighborhood of Brooklyn and ends as she turns 17 and heads off to college. Francie's story is wide-ranging, both uplifting and heartbreaking. The book deals with difficult topics like poverty, addiction, and war. Despite being set in the first two decades of the 1900s, the story has still found ways to resonate with a modern audience. It is a singular story that somehow captures a universal experience. Karina told us about how and when she first fell in love with The Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I remember having to do like a report or something on it. It was like a free reading book and then you had to like write about it. And I remember my teacher, it was the first year I was at that school. So I wasn't really sure how things went at that school. And it was a lot tougher than the school I had previously gone to. And I remember the teacher asking like, what is the significance of the tree? And I mean, I wasn't reading like at a very deep level when I was in sixth grade. <laughs> I kind of like this story. <laughs> yeah, now like I, I think I could expound more on the tree. But back then I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I remember like not having an answer and being sort of embarrassed. And like, I did read it, but I don't know. You're not reading for metaphor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was definitely like growing as a reader. But I remember reading it and feeling very connected to Francie Nolan, who is the main character. I felt like she was a lot like me, like we both had brothers. We had parents who had difficult marriages. We had a dad who was not fully there. And we were often, both of us were often like sort of left on our own to sort of fend for ourselves. But when I looked at Francie, I just felt like there was this really amazing strength about her and like just fortitude and a sense of knowing where she wanted to be and really working to get to that point on her own. And like one of the things I loved was right in the first part of the book where she's sort of wandering around the streets of Brooklyn and her and her brother collecting like little scraps of metal and they're bringing it to the junkyard so they can sell it and make some money, like spending money. Like she gets a whole nickel. Because yeah. <laughs> they have to like save some of the money for 
her mom, and then they get to keep some of the money. So she has a whole nickel, and she's like wandering around like the little stores and trying to decide like where she's going to spend this money. And then she goes to the library, and you know there's like a worn bowl, like a piece of pottery, and she's like, I'm gonna have that when I grow up, like a, a little vase made of pottery and uh, have flowers in it, like that change with the seasons. And and then she goes over to the bookshelves and she is wanting to read every single book in the whole library, alphabetical order. It's so funny because she talks about like some of them are like very boring. <laughs> and then some of them, like she looks a little ahead and I was like, I cannot wait for that one. That just sounds amazing. But I think on Saturday or Sunday, I don't remember exactly what day, she like lets herself choose or asked the librarian like for a recommendation. And the librarian only recommends two books. <laughs> and uh, she gets there and, and the librarian recommends the book that she really wanted because the last couple of weeks she recommended the other one. And she was really excited about it. But she's at the library and she's just looking around and just dreaming about like how things will be different when she gets older. And she says, when I get big and have my own home, no plush chairs or lace curtains for me, and no rubber plants. I'll have a desk like this in my parlor, and white walls, and a clean green blotter every Saturday night, and a row of shining yellow pencils, always sharpened for writing, and a golden brown bowl with a flower or some leaves or berries always in it, and books, books, books. I mean, I think this book really helped me understand like what it meant to want something different from maybe the situation you're growing up in. And I think that's what really kept me motivated through many years growing up, like knowing this is what I wanna do with my life. I wanna to go to New York, I wanna to go to college, I want to be something more than what I feel like is around me. And I felt like having that goal through adolescence and high school and like it really helped me feel grounded and have like a specific end game in mind. And I think that book helped me really figure that out. I was curious if any if that book or any of the other books that you read, and that's a really beautiful passage and sort of like light into what your life kind of appears to be now, actually. But did you ever think about wanting to become a writer and create stories like those when you were reading them? Or was that, how did that come to be? Well, I started writing as soon as I could read. So around second grade, I started writing my own stories. And my dad is an architect. And back then he worked at a firm that had a photocopy machine, which back then was like a really big deal. And he would like bring my story to his office and photocopy it and staple it. Yeah, that was really special. It felt official. And, you know, if you had asked me when I was in second grade what I wanted to do when I grew up, it would be writer. And then I probably lasted until high school. And then high school, you know, you're just exploring so many different things and you're impacted by the people you meet and same thing in college. And so when I had my two kids, I started reading books to them and also being exposed to so much great work that's been happening in the last 20 years with diversity and publishing. Yeah. 
That's a huge shift, right? From what you're kind of expecting. like Huge shift. Yeah. Yeah. From when we were growing up, I mean, like the one Asian character I was exposed to was Claudia Kishi in The Babysitter's Club. (laughs) And yeah. And now, you know, when I was looking at these books for my kids, I was just amazed. Like Grace Lynn and Linda Sue Park and Jackie Woodson and all these authors who really were trailblazers and really, you know, being traditionally published and having books that were well-loved and heavily awarded and, you know, reading those books to my kids. And it just, like, made me remember, hey, I, I used to love to write. Like, maybe I should try. And that's sort of how I started writing again. And it was around when my younger one was going to preschool you know like when they start it's like very little like (laughs) a couple hours a few times a week and you really I didn't have time to go home so I would just go to the coffee shop shop. yeah and just have like two hours by myself and write and it was great and I remember how much I loved it I remember how much I love stories and that's sort of how the Vanderbeekers came to be My daughter, Florence, has a quirky, self-created reading ritual. She has about five books at her bedside, and every night she rotates through them equally so that none are neglected. When she finishes one book, she selects a new one to fill in the rotation. However, when it came to the Vanderbeekers of 141st Street and the subsequent books in the series, that system went out the window. She absolutely devoured them out of order. As kids grow up and develop stronger reading preferences, it can sometimes be difficult to gauge what kind of books they will love. I've noticed that if I make sure we have a wide array of options available, and thank you for a very high checkout limit, DC Public Library, and pay close attention, kids will show us what they want to read. With Flo, I didn't even need to pay close attention to notice her passion for the Vanderbeeker series. She was so invested in the lives of the characters, always sharing the details of their adventures when I would tuck her in. But one night, she came to me with tears in her eyes. She had just read, spoiler alert, the part where a beloved character, the Vanderbeeker's upstairs neighbor, Mr. Jeet, had passed away. It was one of the moments where I realized how incredible Karina is at building such strong emotional connections between her readers and her characters. I was curious to learn how she does this, so I asked. I think, you know, the first thing I always try to do is really fall in love with the characters myself. So, like, to create characters that I feel like are very nuanced, they're not all one thing or the other thing. They're not, like even people have said to me, like, there's not really a villain in your stories. Like there's like a more antagonist, but not someone who's ever truly evil. Like there's, you can always really see that there are multiple sides to a story or there might be a reason why someone's acting a certain way. And I think, you know, a lot of that is just how I grew up and, the compassion a lot of people have shown me. I've had lots of people who have acted as mothers to me, mothered me in a way that helped me grow a lot. 
and also having kids myself and seeing the situations they're in and things that they're going through. Mr. G and Miss Josie, who are neighbors in the book, they are very close to the Vanderbeekers, almost like surrogate grandparents. And we have, like down our hallway, a woman who is very kind and sweet to our family and it's been a part of our family since we moved into this building, which was back when my younger one was just born. So thinking about that, I also had a really good friend who was like a dad to me when I was working at Homes for the Homeless. And he passed away right around when my first book came out. And just like the depth of feeling I felt for losing him. Also just like gratitude for all the ways that he loved me and changed my life. So like just really like going back to remembering those things, like building that into the story, that helps a lot letting myself feel all those emotions when I'm writing it. I cried a lot writing the fourth book, which is when Mr. G passes away. And a lot of people messaged me and were really upset or just like, you know, we're really sad about this. And I was too. I was really sad writing that. But those are things that kids are going through. They're losing loved ones. You know, it's hard to process. And I hope in a way reading about those situations. Maybe if they haven't been in that situation, they know someone who has, or they have friends who have really struggled with losing loved ones. And, you know, that all helps build empathy and to help know, like, what to do. And also, you know, with Mr. G, I tried to build up to that point. So even in the, you know, when we first meet him, he's not super healthy in the first book either. Oh, he, yeah, I don't think it comes as, like, a big surprise. Is that right? They're prepared yeah, I hope so. I mean, I have gotten so yeah. many emails where people are very sad or there's like, chapter 17, oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's a part of life. And I really try to reflect what families are going through in the books. I think all of my books, even though they are fun and they're funny, I try to make them really funny. I also don't try to shy away from hard topics that we are all going through. In Karina's latest novel, A Duet for Home, she takes an even deeper dive into hard topics. The story is about two young characters who become friends while living in a homeless shelter after experiencing immense trauma. It follows their fight against a new housing policy that would harm them and their families. With support from one another and some important adults in their lives, the young heroes of the story move from feeling powerless to being agents of their own story. It's an intense premise, but it's yet another example of the talent Karina has for developing such empathetic connections for young readers while not ducking challenging themes. Much like the Vanderbeeker series, she evoked her own life experiences to draw raw and real emotion into her story. I did a double major in Asian cultures and political science and thought I really wanted to do more nonprofit work, um, which I did. I worked at a homeless shelter in New York City for many years. All of those things were amazing for getting life experience and getting a better idea of different people and how to work with others and understanding other people's circumstances. 
Thinking of your own daughters or even the schools you visited, um, have you noticed teachers or the librarians there using books to address some of the harder issues that kids might be experiencing? I just think it's really hard to grow up right now. <laughs> like you're just, there's a lot of media and there's a lot of news and it just feels like every day there's just something really shocking on the news. And I feel like kids who are reading a lot, they are equipped to understand and deal with a lot of the things that are happening in the world because they can remember situations that came up in a book they've read that helps them be more prepared for how to deal with it, how to cope, how to have resilience. I mean, I do think we're in this amazing renaissance in children's literature where we're getting so many more different viewpoints and different topics are being addressed that were never addressed before. And I feel like my kids have such a broader understanding of the world because they read a lot. I'm just really grateful that my kids are growing up in a time where there is so much out there for them to read. You know, when I talk to my friends, we're all around like my age and have kids like and they're writers and the story is always the same. When we were growing up, we didn't have books that reflected us and that was really hurtful and harmful, I think, because you grew up feeling like you were never the hero of the story, like books never reflected a situation that you were going through. And because of that, you didn't really have a like worth because you were never truly seen. And I think now, you know, we have this opportunity to share our perspectives and share what life was like growing up or to put in our books heroes that look like us, who have families like us, who have cultures and religions and all these things that make us unique and we can share that and kids have that unique perspective and I'm really thankful. I'm just sort of last couple of questions here wondering if you, when you visited any of the schools where you've been, I know it's been a pandemic, so maybe not in person too much, but you know, uh, when you have, if you've noticed like anything in particular about the schools that you visit where you really feel like it kind of strikes you that, wow, they're really doing something here that makes it seem like reading is a part of what's happening. It feels like it's really woven, you know, reading for the sake and the joy of reading is built into the culture or the fabric of the school. I had like a fantastic school visit in Ohio, Columbus, Ohio in May. It was scheduled for 2020, May 2020. And so I just recently went and um, this librarian, Annie Rufel, she had just incredible energy and you could see her impact throughout the whole school. It was a private girls' school. She had a really small library, but it was just packed with everything, like books and art. And she was really big into incorporating art with reading. And they have like a theme every year that is incorporated in the whole school and they do artwork all throughout the halls. And I think there was like this big like glacier <laughs> like that they had made out of paper, like just in the hall, like cause they were weaving in animals and different things into reading. And when I visited, it was incredible. Like she and the kids, they had made like jewelry with the Vanderbeekers book cover on it. And so like all the kids were like wearing earrings or like necklaces. They had 
you know, in my books, I talk a lot about pets and animals. So they had a whole wall where they had just like kids with their pets, like reading with their pets. They had brownstones everywhere, like made out of boxes, like floor to ceiling brownstone artwork, like all down the hall. And I mean, I just felt like reading was such a big part of the school. It just didn't feel like, okay, this is library time. And this is when you read, like, it was just incorporated in everyone's classroom. It was incorporated in their art and the school as a whole. It was really incredible. And I see this at so many schools where there's that one person who just really makes it their mission to get as many kids to read as possible. And I just think it's so incredible the work they do. And you can really feel it when you walk in because kids are in and out of the library. They they love being there. It's a safe space for them. You can tell in the way they talk and the way they bring up other books when they talk. And it's just really, it's really special. And those kids are so lucky. You know, this one school and a lot of these schools they visit, they're so lucky to have librarians and teachers that are so invested in them being exposed to so many different stories. You know, they'll have that the rest of their life. And you know, pass that on to their kids. And it just like, it's just really, really lovely. It must be kind of full circle for you when you're going back and seeing the school libraries where you took refuge as a kid to be there and sort of being back there now with your own books and your own presentations. Yes, yeah, it it feels very surreal. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, my daughter Florence is a massive fan of Karina's. Hi. You can say hi. Hi. Hi, Flo. It's nice to meet you. Nice meeting you too. I have my uh, cat with me. <laughs> it's like a assistant. <laughs> when we first started thinking about how we were going to create this podcast and what it would be about, my daughter was adamant that I had to get Karina Yan Glazer. And right away, I love that idea because my job is literally hunting for better ways to engage kids with reading. So I wanted to find out how Karina has built such a powerful connection with young readers like my own daughter. But while my questions focus a lot on what adults want to know, of course, I had to give Florence the opportunity to ask a question or two about what kids might want to know. I know that my favorite character in the book is Lainey, so I was wondering if you have a favorite character. <laughs> hmm Well, I also love Lainey. I, you know, it's really interesting because when I started writing the books, I wondered if I was going to have like a favorite And it turns out that I really like all of them. Like, I like all the main characters a lot. And I never feel like when I'm writing it, like, that I'm, like, annoyed that I have to write someone's perspective. Like, oh, man, I have to write Jessie now. Like, she's so boring. I never feel that. I always feel really excited to see their perspectives. And Lainey is super fun to write because Lainey is a lot like my younger daughter. At least, like, when my younger daughter was younger. So when I started writing The Vanderbeekers of 141st Street... My younger daughter was four and three quarters, which is how old Lainey is at the start of the books. So a lot of the characteristics that Lainey has is very similar to my daughter. And things like the way she dressed or the way she like hugged everyone. She was like a big hugger. She would like say hi to 
random strangers on the subway, which is what Lainey does. So like all those things were, it was like the easiest character to write because I was like, I have like real life inspiration, like living with me. I can, I can really knock this character out of the park. <laughs> so I'm glad you like Lainey too. She's really fun to write. Again, that was Karina Yan Glazer, New York Times bestselling author, known for her series, The Vanderbeekers, and more recently, A Duet for Home. Karina created a fabulous reading challenge for our listeners. Her theme is books where New York City is a character. That tracks, right? You can join Karina's challenge by visiting thereadingculturepod.com. Check it out and let us know what you think. Before we end things, I want to take a moment to shout out the Beanstack featured librarian for this episode. This week, that title goes to Megan Wilson. Megan is a librarian at Aggieland High School in College Station, Texas, which is part of the International Leadership of Texas Charter School Network. IL Texas has been a Beanstack client for a few years, and Megan has had great success engaging what can be a tough group, high schoolers. Today, Megan shares with us a book she loves to recommend to her students. My number one go-to is uh, Lovely War by Julie Berry. Um, The thing that's so cool about it is she actually wrote it from the perspective of Aphrodite and Apollos and Ares and Hades, like several of the Greek gods, and they are sharing the story about how they I don't want to use the word manipulated, but how they had a hand in a relationship that was developing during World War I. I don't know exactly how Julie Berry came up with this really grand and in-depth, well-put-together novel that I thought was really unique, but it is phenomenal. This has been The Reading Culture. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan and rereading The Giver by Lois Lowry. If you liked this show, please rate, subscribe, and share among your friends and networks. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the show. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.